from our series uh, in First Peter as we celebrated the Easter weekend, and what a lovely weekend that was. But we're jumping straight back in uh, this week, so let me encourage you to have your Bibles open. I know it's going to be up on the screen, but if I could encourage you to have your Bibles open, we're going to be jumping back and forth between the different verses, so it's best to have it in front of you. If not, it is on the screen, and we are reading from First Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 21, verses 13 to 21. This is what the word of the Lord says. Therefore, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead, And gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we just pray that as we come to your word this morning, that you would speak to us, that you would challenge us, that you would challenge us to think and to act in accordance with your word. And Father, we pray that you would bring us conviction of just how much it costs you to set us apart, to make us holy for yourself. May we dwell on these thoughts, on these concepts, and may they have fruit in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, as is often said, when guys get together, when they get together for social gatherings, it's nearly always around an activity. I'm not sure why, but it just seems much more comfortable when guys meet up that we gather around some sort of activity, right? Everyone seems a little bit more at ease when we have something in our hands. At the very least, a drink, right? Or a pool cue, or some lawn bowls, or some golf clubs, um, or even just a boar to kick around Uh, during a barbecue at the park. However, when the outdoor options are relatively limited, as they were when I lived in the UK, often it was just too cold outside, the guys would often gather around a friendly game of poker. Now, just for the record, I'm not saying poker is an all-round okay activity, but like any game, if poker is anything more than a game for you, if you come with it, If you come to it with just this wanton craving to win, maybe it's not the wisest game for you to play. But on the few occasions, right, where I was invited to such gatherings, to be awfully honest with you, I spent um, 
I spent more of the evenings watching than I did playing because I'd be quickly knocked out in the early rounds of play. Now, for those of you who don't know poker very well, um, every player, they get a set of chips, right? Uh, Which is basically how you keep score during the game. And the basic rule of thumb uh, in poker, uh, I think this is the basic rule of thumb, I wasn't great at it, was that you should put a proportional amount of chips right, based on the strength of the hand of cards that you are dealt, right? And so as I spent time watching people play this game during those evenings, most of the time this rule of thumb was followed, right? People placed an amount of chips on the table that was roughly proportional to the strength of their cards. Of course, there was times when they bluffed and and whatnot. However, however, there was nearly... Always one moment, there's nearly always one moment, right, for every player, one point in every game where a given player would necessarily have to go all in. They had to go all in, right? And what I mean by all in is that they would have to push all their chips, everything that they had won up to that point, everything that they had left at that point, Everything, they had to push it into the center of the table to risk everything for the sake of progressing in the game. And so when a player goes all in, it would require that they throw everything they had in the game in on this one hand of cards that they now held. You know, as I approach, uh, as I observe this phenomenon, I couldn't help but see the parallels this has to how we approach life. You see, friends, though we try our very best to you know, proportionally give ourselves to good and worthwhile things in our life, right? while we try to do it in a balanced way, there always seems, there always seems to be this innate desire, this innate desire within us right, to find something worthy enough, something worthy enough to give ourselves completely to. There's this relentless search in our hearts, isn't there, right? To find something that we can make our everything, right? Something worth risking it all for. Something that we can go all in on. You see, friends, the universal human problem is that we go all in on the wrong things. We fixate upon one thing. And we make that one thing out everything. It may, be, it may be a relationship for you. It may be your career. It may be success. It may be status. It may be approval from others, approval from your parents, maybe. It may be your personal freedoms. It could even be your family. Don't get me wrong. These, these things, they're all, they're all good things, right? They're all good things. But the point is, our broken hearts are often hardwired to go all in on one thing as if it's our everything. But Christianity makes the compelling case that there is only actually one thing that is really worth giving our everything to. One thing which is really worthy of going all in on, and that is God himself as revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so as we open up the scriptures today, I pray that we would, one, gain wisdom on how to be 
all in for God, but at the same time, convicted as to the why to be all in for God. Let me say that again. I pray we will gain wisdom on how to be all in for God, but also convicted of the, how, of the why to be all in for God. You'd be relieved to know that I have just three points this morning. Uh, number one, all in in thought. Number two, all in in conduct. And number three, all in because God is all in for us. Okay, point number one, all in in our thoughts, right? So read with me verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So where does a life, where does a life that is all in for God begin? Peter tells us clearly that it begins in the thought life. It begins in the mind. The first arena of operation for those who are all in for God is in the mind. Prepare your minds. Be sober-minded. You know, some, some Christians say that um, to be all in for God starts with the catchphrase, to let go and to let God. Now, I appreciate the emphasis that this phrase puts on surrendering everything to God, but I fear, I fear that this catchphrase is a little too simplistic. Instead, let's have a look at what Scripture tells us to do. Here, Peter instructs us to use the faculty of our minds, right? To think deeply about the implications of our, of our faith. Oh, friends, Christianity, Christianity is by no means a mindless faith. It's not a mindless faith. No, Christianity honors the fact that God created the human mind. He created the human mind, and so Peter begins by telling us that to be all in necessitates the use and the exercise of our God-given minds. So how are we to do this? It says, firstly, to prepare our minds for actions. Read with me. Prepare your minds for actions. You know, normally the ESV is it's quite a literal translation most of the time, but due to, I guess, the, the cultural distance between us and the time of Peter's writing, even the ESV decided to use a pretty paraphrased translation. It says, it says, prepare your minds for action. But if you look to the bottom of your page in a footnote, it says that it can be literally translated as girding up, girding up the loins of your mind. You see, in the ancient world, people would wear these long tunics, these long tunics that would go you know, well below uh, knee height. The ability to run or to do any serious work would be impeded by this long cloth of the tunic. So in order to have the freedom to run, to have the freedom to work earnestly, you needed to reach down, you grab the loose ends, you push it back through your legs, wrap it around, and tie it tightly in a knot in front of you. That's what it means to gird up your loins, which is a metaphor which illustrates physically what Peter tells us must happen mentally. In other words, brothers and sisters, are our minds in a posture of readiness? You know, complacent and lazy thinking is the exact opposite of what Peter is speaking of here. You know, it's impossible to be all in for God if your minds are just in a posture of, I don't really have the time and 
I don't really want to spend the effort to think about the implications of the gospel for my life choices, so on and so forth. No, my friends, all in living, holy living, necessarily begins with all in thinking. You know, when I was about seven years old, I remember one afternoon, I was fiddling around with this, this old rusty bike in the shed. And I still remember I crouched down and I started, you know, like moving the pedal with one of my hands. And then for some reason, still unknown to me, I decided to put my finger on the bike chain. All right? I put my finger on the bike chain. And I watched it. I watched as my finger moved closer to the chain ring. The chain ring is the thing, you know, with the spiky teeth, the round thing with the spiky te- teeth. And, you know, I watched as I, as I saw this, one of the spiky teeth pierced straight into the middle of my finger. I freaked out and I pulled out my finger. I was holding my hand like this and I still vividly remember that I could see flesh coming out of the wound as I squeezed my hand. You see, friends, this action was marked by loose thinking, very loose thinking, <laughs> Right? Clearly, I did not properly think through the implications of my decisions and my actions. Right? I, in other words, you could put it, I thoughtlessly drifted into a situation where my finger paid the price. How much more so should we then be thinking intentionally and deeply about the way in which we live? If I take this job, would it honor the Lord And what would it mean for family life? If I keep my phone in my room without content controls at night, what temptations am I exposing myself to? If we stretch, if we stretch to get this mortgage, to get that dream house, what unseen life choices are we then locking ourselves into? If we encourage our kids to pursue certain sports, Will that impede us from freely coming to worship on Sunday mornings? Friends, do you have a posture of mind to make every thought captive to Christ? Are there any aspects of your thought life which are loose and flailing about? Any ideas or narratives which you have imbibed from the culture around you or maybe assumed from your upbringing patterns of thinking which are impeding your ability to run hard, to be all in for Christ. Peter goes on by saying, and being sober-minded. Now, there's no doubt that he does include being physically sober, not getting physically drunk in this. But Peter is speaking more so here about a mental, about a spiritual sobriety a level-headedness, a firm grasp of the reality of our brokenness and the brokenness of the world around us. To give you an idea of what it looks to be spiritually drunk, check out this quote from Edmund Clowney. puts it so well. The hallucinations of spiritual drunkenness are not just amusing pink elephants, but they're devouring monsters, the ideologies of political oppression, the fantasies of sexual lust, the the jealous hatreds of personal spite. The world seeks orgies of perversion before it sinks into the drunken stupor of hopelessness. So brothers and sisters, to be spiritually drunk is to allow yourselves to fall into a if 
if-only mindset. If only this political party was in power. If only everyone just bought into this ideology. If only we were free to pursue our every sexual desire. If only I could remove this person from my life. If only we just had more money. If only I just get that promotion or I make partner next year. I tell you the truth, my friends. I tell you the truth. Even, even if... Even if we hit net zero carbon emissions by 2050, even if we somehow had a mechanism to clear all the microplastics from the ocean, even if we secured funding to put a school in every village, in every country in the world, even if you had all the cash that you dreamt of in your bank account, a sober mind would refuse, it would refuse to put its hope in the here and now. A sober mind will be realistic about the broken world that we live in. But not just that, a sober mind will be realistic about the brokenness of themselves. You know, in 1987, Reverend Gordon MacDonald was the head of the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, which is the uni ministry in America. He had also previously been, for I think 12 years, senior pastor of the largest church in New England. He was also on the board of directors for the Christianity Today publication. But in June 1987, he resigned from this position because of an adulterous relationship. Now, you know, a brave student who didn't actually know him personally from Westminster Seminary, scratching his head, thinking, how could this possibly happen to a man so used by God decided bravely to reach out to Reverend Gordon MacDonald and to, um, to shout him a meal and just to talk about what happened. So Gordon MacDonald said, yes, I'll come along to the meal. And the student at the end of the meal, he, he gathered up all the courage and he asked the big question. He asked the big question, how did you fall into such grievous sin? Gordon MacDonald looked at the student And he said, you're a Calvinist, right? The student replied, "Uh uh-huh. Gordon continues, so you believe that there's enough evil in your heart to destroy the world three times over? The student thought about it. And he soberly replied, I believe that. Then Gordon concluded, that was my problem. That was my problem. I didn't believe that about myself. You see, brothers and sisters, sober-mindedness acknowledges, yes, the brokenness of the world around us, yet it also acknowledges the brokenness of the heart within us. So then, if we are to have a mind that is prepared for action and one that is sober, one that doesn't hope in the world and doesn't hope in ourselves, where where are we to focus our minds then? Verse 13, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is where we get our all-in language, don't we? We are to set, we are to establish, we are to anchor our hopes fully, completely, totally, and finally on that glorious day when Jesus Christ will return. That's where our hope is to be. Now, you know when the ESV says, set your hope fully, on the grace that will be brought to you 
I think that there is a case to be made that is probably better translated as set your hope fully on the grace that is being brought to you. Since in the Greek, Peter uses the present participle. And the reason I think Peter expresses this future reality in present tense terms is because he's hinting to us, he's hinting to us that if you so firmly anchor your hope in Jesus' future return, it should tangibly shape how you think in the present. I think the best way I can think of describing this is like when my mum has promised to make my favorite dish after school for dinner. Now, you know, as I'm walking home from school, so real is my anticipation of it that I can nearly already taste it in my mouth, right? The aromas of it are nearly already in my nostrils. Though dinner is still a few hours away, my mind is so focused, it's so captivated, it's so enthralled by what awaits me me, that in some sense it is already a present reality. Look, I'm not saying that there won't be moments of disappointment in our lives, but for those who are all in for God, their ultimate hope is not in their dream job. Their hope is not in their dream house. Their hope is not in ministry success. Their hope is not in themselves. Their hope is not even in their children succeeding in where they failed. No. Despite having no hope in all these things, such a person can never be called a hopeless person because of the twin pillars of faith and hope in their life. Faith that the Lord is risen and hope that their Lord is is coming back. Oh, friends, this is what it means to be all in in our thoughts. Point number two, all in, not just in thought, but also all in in our conduct as well. Yes, being all in, yes, starts with thinking. However, it can't just be contained up here, right? No, brothers and sisters, what starts in the head must always make its way to the hands, Right? The Christian life is it's a beautifully integrated life, a life where there's consistency between thinking and doing, between thought and conduct, between doctrine and deeds. Read with me verse 14 to 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Notice first of all how Peter addresses us in this passage. He calls us, what does he call us? Obedient children. He doesn't say, he doesn't say this. He doesn't say, you know what? As obedient servants, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance so that one day you may be counted worthy to be called children. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. No, from the get-go, Peter literally calls us children of obedience. Oh, church, our obedience, our conformity to the nature of God isn't because we're trying to earn for ourselves some sort of new identity. No, the total opposite. God has caused us to be born again to a new identity from which a life of conformity to his nature flows. Identity precedes conformity. 
Identity precedes conformity. And not a conformity to the passions of our former ignorance. You see, before we experienced the grace of God, we gave ourselves from one thing to the next. We made idol after idol after idol for ourselves. This is what Peter calls our former passions. In other words, there are inordinate desires. There are blown out of proportion desires. They're very possibly good things. Don't get me wrong. They're good things, but they're good things that we've made our everything. So then, brothers and sisters, in having been given this new identity, you've been brought into a new family. Or more precisely speaking, using the language of Peter, you've been cut out. You've been cut out. You've been sanctified. You've been made holy. You've been set apart for the family of God. So what business then do we have in returning to the passions of your former ignorance? What business do we have viewing lewd images on our phones and our computers? What business do we have in backbiting and gossiping in the office? What business do we have in craving worldly power and status? What business do we have comparing with one another and envying one another? What business do we have with anxious fretting? What business do we have in immoral parties and drinking in excess? You know, I don't don't say this out of a desire to condemn anyone. I say it because these things, they run contrary to our new identity. I'm not saying these in our lives that there needs to be or can be sinless perfection. No, that's, that's, that's for the new heavens and the new earth. But as I've said to many friends in the past who've struggled to cut themselves off from former passions in their lives, this is one question that I ask them. I ask them, is there evidence of a fight in your life? Is there evidence of a fight in your life? Is there evidence of a holy discontent at areas of your life which are still conformed to the former passions? If so, praise God. Praise God and keep fighting that fight. On the contrary, though, on the contrary, if there is a pattern of complacency, if there's a pattern of indifference to being enslaved to your former passions, if you have no appetite for a greater obedience in your life, I plead that you would wake up to the reality of who God has called you to be. As Thomas Schreiner warns us so well, there is a way of living that becomes dull to the reality of God, that is anesthetized by the attractions of this world. When people are lulled into such drowsiness, they lose sight of Christ's future revelation of himself And they concentrate. Where do they concentrate? They concentrate only on fulfilling their earthly desires. The last thing that I want to say on this point is this. The call of God away from the passions of our former ignorance and into the holiness of God is a total claim on all of our lives. It's a total claim on all of our lives. This is where the all-in language kicks in again. You also be holy in some of your conduct. No, he doesn't say that. You also be holy in most of your conduct. No, he doesn't say that. He says, 
you also be holy in all, all of your conduct. You know, I used to wrongly think that holiness was primarily defined by the intensiveness of obedience to God in a set area of my life. In other words, I really did think that being holy meant being a missionary in the most difficult, the most remote, the most unreached village in the world. But that's not the specification of holiness given to us here. It's not the intensiveness of our obedience that is addressed here, but it's the extensiveness of the obedience. When Peter says, you shall be holy for I am holy, he's quoting from Leviticus. He's effectively saying that to be holy is to be set apart. It means that we acknowledge that God has a claim. He has cut off the entirety of who we are for himself. Every part of our lives. There's not a single area of your life that is off limits to our holy God. There's no chamber of our heart's affections that is not to be devoted to him. From who you are in the quiet of your devotions to how you carry yourself on your your Twitter account. From your conversation with the newcomer, always excited and so welcoming, to how you are with your spouse after a long day of work, from how you are with your church friends on Sunday to how you carry yourself when you're with your old high school mates or your footy mates. All of the conduct is to be purged of our former ignorance, and it's to be set apart for conformity to God. Oh, friends, yes, being all in begins with our minds, but this thinking, this thinking must be pressed out must be pressed out into every nook and cranny of the way we live our lives. You know, every, every time our GC meets up, we, we have the pleasure, and it really is a pleasure, of hearing you know, one or two folks from our, uh, from our group give their testimony. Recently, one of the dear sisters uh, from our group, uh, she shared her testimony of how even from a relatively young age, she had an active faith in Christ. And as she moved from her teenage years on to her university years, she was increasingly involved in serving at church. But, but there was one area of her life that was out of bounds. One area of her life that was out of bounds. That was off limits to the Lord. Right? And that was her relationship with her unbelieving boyfriend. She then shared on one particular occasion where her group leader, and praise God for courageous group leaders, right? Point blank challenged her as to whether she was really all in for God if she kept holding on to this relationship. The leader then challenged her to break off the relationship, quote, tomorrow. Tomorrow. Quite a wise move from her group leader, because the, lead, the group leader didn't say, what about right now? Because that would just force a spur-of-the-moment decision, which you'll probably reverse anyway. But she didn't say, next month, because that would diminish the importance of the matter. She said, tomorrow, a day. A day gave her the time to be sober-minded, to be sober-minded, to think through the implications of her faith. 
and then to set herself apart in her conduct. To set herself apart in conduct. And praise be to God. Our dear sister, she thought it through. She thought it through. And she followed through in obedience. And she even testified to us that evening that from that moment on that she went all in, God blessed her with tremendous spiritual growth. And you know what? The irony of her testimony, the irony of her testimony is that in breaking off this relationship with her unbelieving boyfriend, she experienced a beautiful integration of her thought life and her conduct, of doctrine and her deeds. Okay, lastly, point number three. So far we've covered the how of being all in in Christ, in our thinking and in our doing, right? But what I want to do is spend the remaining time covering the why, the motivation for us going all in for God. So point number three, all in because God is all in for us. And I want to highlight three ways in which God is all in for us. First off, let's look at verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. You see, God is all in. He's all in for us in the way that he fathers us. In the way that he fathers us. Yes, he, yes we call on him as father, as a loving father. But that is never... That is never to the exclusion of the fact that he judges our deeds, that he judges our conduct in an impartial manner. Now, as a parent, trust me, trust me, I know very well that in one sense, it's sometimes just more convenient, it's less of an emotional cost, it's just easier at times just to turn a blind eye to the wrong things that my children do. Time out for them is time out for me. Right? I've got to monitor the clock. Right? But love, love compels me to see through this short-term inconvenience, to see through it, this short-term heartache, to parent impartially, to see the disobedience of my children's life for what it truly is, and to lovingly discipline and to call them out on it. I mean, for all of us, if we could, you know, hypothetically, hypothetically delete from our lives, delete from our memories every occasion where our parents or some authority figure took the time, took the effort, took the emotional cost to call us out and discipline us, if we could somehow delete those from our lives and forget every instance of them, we would just be a shadow of who we are today. Yes, there were probably many times where sinful parents and sinful authority figures disciplined us with the wrong motives, right? Or the discipline was disproportionate to the wrongdoing. But by and large, this sort of consistent parental discipline and the fear that it commands in our hearts has shaped us. The truth is it's shaped us for the better. Now, if this process in the hands of sinful parents, in the hands of sinful authority figures, bears good fruit. How much more so would this process bear good fruit when in the hands of a tender, impartial, perfectly proportionate hands of our Heavenly Father? 
You see, friends, in God's impartiality, God, he's all in. He's all in. He's committed. He's lovingly dedicated to this parenting process. And this should put a holy fear in our hearts, a reverent respect for his fatherly authority, an ever-growing desire for greater obedience. Secondly, God is all in for us as demonstrated by the cost of redemption. By the cost of redemption, we know he's all in. Just read with me verses 18 and 19. Knowing that you were ransomed from your futile ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, Friends, our redemption, our redemption was not purchased with even the most precious of earthly elements, silver or gold. No, it was purchased by the precious blood of Christ, the Lamb of God, who had no blemish or spot. Just let that weigh on your hearts for a moment. The precious blood of Christ. Friends, our Freedom, our deliverance from slavery to our former ignorance, from slavery to our futile ways, came at the cost of divine blood. It cost the Father. It cost the Father his only begotten, beloved Son. You know, friends, just, um, just last week we were, we were so looking forward to the kids coming onto the stage and singing Jesus is Alive as part of our Resurrection Sunday service. And what a wonderful job Beth did in arranging and organizing all that. It was fantastic. And therefore, to support that, we, in our family worship time, in, uh, in the time in the car, we would just blast that song, Jesus is Alive, to give our kids an opportunity to fall in love with that song and to practice it. But come 9.15 last week, Nathan gets to practice. He gets to practice with all the other kids. He gets onto the stage, and he stands right here, and he's like this. (laughs) He's not happy. He's got his arms crossed. He's got his tongue out. Oh, dear. Ivy tells me about his behavior, and, you know, I have a bit of a chat with Nathan on the side. I'm like, Nathan, my boy, what's going on? You love this song. We're playing this song in the car. And, you know, uh, remember today. Today is the day that we celebrate that Jesus is alive. He came back from the grave. He smashed death. Remember that. You, You know what? Don't sing it for us. Sing it for Jesus. Just, Just sing it for him. Yeah? So fast forward to the end of the song, of the end of the third song. The kids are now shuffling in, now to the front. I kind of lean over. Where's Nathan? Oh, great. Somehow he's positioned himself right at the front row. He's going to be arms crossed, tongue out for four minutes in front of the whole congregation. But would you believe it? The song starts. Nathan's smiling. He's singing along. He's even following the actions. Let there be dancing in the darkness and let our song break through the night. What? I couldn't believe it. That's my boy. Every ounce of my 
being just wanted to run onto the stage and give him the biggest hug ever. It would be highly disruptive, but I wanted to do that. I just wanted to do that. Oh, friends, this is, this is just a mere picture of the affections of a sinful father towards his sinful son. Imagine, imagine the depths of affection between our Heavenly Father, our Heavenly Father, and His perfectly obedient Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, Jesus getting baptized in the Jordan River, the perfect Son now identifying with sinful humanity, immediately coming up out of the waters, the heavens were opened, the Spirit of God descends upon Him, and a voice from the Heavenly Father says, This This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus, Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, face shining like the sun, his clothes white as light. And then the voice of the Father coming from the cloud This, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Yet, Jesus, Jesus at Calvary, as the Lamb of God hangs on the cross to ransom us from sin and death, as he obediently lived out what he prayed the night before, which was, Father, Father, Not my will, not my will, but yours be done. At the point of maximum obedience in his life to his father, silence. There is no voice from heaven. There is no word of assurance. There is no word of comfort. Just silence. Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Every ounce of the Father's being longed, longed to embrace his perfectly obedient Son, but for our sake, there is no answer. No answer. There is no voice. There is no word of comfort, just grief as the father responds with a deathly silence of his wrath poured out for our sins on his beloved son. O church, the father spared not his own son but gave him up for us. And as we often sing, as we often sing, What gift of grace is Jesus, my Redeemer? There is no more. There is no more for heaven now to give. You see, my friends, God has gone all in for us at the cross. God has gone all in for us at the cross. God has gone all in for us at the cross. Do we then dare Do we then dare walk through the field of our lives and say, oh, this part of my flock, this part of my life, 
oh, I'm sorry, but that's, that's off limits to you, God. That, 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 that's out of bounds. Uh, but, but you see that blemished, sick animal? You see that blemished, sick animal over there? Yeah, you, you can have that. That'll do. You can have that part of my life. You can have the, you can have the scraps. Do we dare do that when God has gone all in for us at the cross? Lastly, and to finish, the third way that God has gone all in for us is captured in verses 20 and 21. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Brothers and sisters, these verses right here, they tell us that the plan of God to ransom us with the precious blood of Jesus from our futile ways, from our former ignorance, was not a plan that was scrambled together last minute. No, the Son was there with the Father in eternity past, and it was determined. It was determined before time even began that the Son would be made manifest, that he would live on earth, he would die the death that we deserved He will be raised in glory and then seated at the right hand of the Father, all for our sake. You know, in his sovereign kindness, we don't live nowadays in Shang Dynasty China. We're not Celts living in the 5th century BC. We live in the time where the glorious truth of Christ has been revealed. And that's by no accident. A truth which angels once even longed to look into. Put simply, put simply, you were lovingly on the mind of God before you even had a mind. Or put another way, when God authored the story of redemption, we sang it this morning, when he authored the story of redemption, you were already on his mind. God was all in for you from all eternity. The sheer fact that today you have faith and hope in God through Christ has been pre-planned from before time even began. Oh friends, God has been all in for you all the way back. So there we have it. Two necessary ways to be all in for God in our thought and our conduct And three reasons to be all in for him. God is all in in the way he impartially fathers you. God is all in as demonstrated by the cost of redemption. And God has been all in for you from all the way back. Let me close in prayer. You know what? Um, Before we pray, let's all just, let's just all close our eyes and Let's put into practice what Scripture has spoken to us today. To be all in for God requires us to think and then to act. So I want us to think for a moment. Are there areas of your life which you are not all in for God? Areas which you have made out of bounds for Him. Areas that are off-limit to him. Think also about the tenderly, fatherly love he has for you. Think about the cost it it cost him. 
to ransom you for himself. Think about how he has loved you from time began, from before time began. Now let your thoughts flow now to your actions. If you, if you sense that the Holy Spirit is pointing out an area of your life that is not set apart to the Lord, I want you to raise your hands and I want to pray. I want to pray for everyone, but I want to pray especially for you. Just raise your hands as a sign of obedience, as an expression of wanting to be set apart, of wanting to be set apart. Just raise your hands as an expression of a desire to be all in for God. Let me pray for us. Father God, it's so clear. It's so clear that you have been all in for us from all the way back. And it costs you. It costs you everything. And you're still walking with us in this life, impartially disciplining us and training us. You are all in, and we worship you for that. We worship you for that. But we confess that there are aspects of our lives where we have said, this is off limits. This is out of bounds for you. And we repent of that. We turn from that. We say, no, you are our everything. You are our everything. We want to be all in for you. We want to be all in for you. So, Father, we pray, especially for those who have responded in faith, Lord, we pray that you would revive us, give us a refreshed zeal for you. Let every part of our lives be devoted, set apart, cut off, made holy for you. Oh God, you are worth it. You are worth it in every single way. We give you our everything. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.